after the game, the next day in the, in the paper, it's a picture of me like a jack-in-the-box with a spring coming out of my head, like totally lost it. And I realized there in one game in a few minutes, my career could go from being the very best to being considered a total failure or you know, huge uh, letdown. Hello, and welcome to How to Fail Successfully, the podcast that teaches the steps to success through the stories of failures. I'm so happy that you can join me as I interview some of my favorite people and encourage them to share their story with you. I'm Matthew Carrier, and this is How to Fail Successfully. I am so excited to share this very, very special episode with you on the eve, eve, eve of Super Bowl Sunday. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast. You'll always be alerted of new episodes when they arrive at the exact time they arrive. And after you subscribe, come visit me on Instagram at failsuccessfully and say hello. That is at failsuccessfully. Okay, so let's hop into today's episode. I want to share the story with you about a situation that happened almost a month ago. Cody Parkey, kicker for the Chicago Bears, stepped out onto the field with 10 seconds left in the game. The Bears, down 15-16, were one 43-yard kick away from their first playoff win since 2011. The ball was snapped and millions of people watched in stunned amazement as Parkey's kick hit the left upright and then doinked off the crossbar. No good. The Bears lost. Adversity. How do you handle it? How do you face it? Many of us get the opportunity to face adversities on a much smaller scale, but what do you do if you fail on a national stage? Thankfully, our guest today will share his stories of how after being cut by eight NFL teams 11 times, he was able to learn from his failures and push himself to ultimately become one of the most accurate kickers in the NFL. Here's my episode with Nick the Kick Lowry. Nick Lowry, also known as Nick the Kick. Do you like that nickname or do you not like that nickname? Actually, I really, I really like it because it reminds me of the opportunities that arose after finally making it and starting a program called kick with Nick for cerebral palsy. My aunt had cerebral palsy and yet had an amazing life as a professional writer, got her degree and was a university librarian at the university of Utah. And we ended up raising a million dollars for United cerebral palsy in Kansas city. But most importantly, it was just such a powerful statement that, you know, everybody has, adversity and it's just much more obvious when you see somebody that has cerebral palsy who whose little victories are learning how to tie their shoes for the first time and you know all sorts of things that we take for granted and just how ironic it was for me with my teammates and myself you know complaining that our socks weren't properly dried or Mm -hmm. you know the food was terrible which at times early in my career it certainly was um but uh, um to realize that the challenges that some people face on a daily basis are yeah. so much more significant. 
Absolutely. So that's Nick. Nick the Kick is derives from Kick with Nick for cerebral palsy, which won the, uh, the national award from United Cerebral Palsy back in wow. way back in 1989. Uh, but it it really got me, and I know we're going to talk about this later. But it got me into um, the power of um, something that sounds kind of boring, philanthropy, but it's really the capacity to help others and and really define uh, with a period on the end of the sentence of what real success is about. Man. That's amazing. You know, you kind of briefly mentioned what you've been doing a little bit lately, but I kind of want to go back to the beginning. Can you kind of share with us your story about how you've gotten to where you are today? Well, um, I I was very lucky, very spoiled, not in terms of being part of a wealthy family, but wealthy in terms of education. My, My mother was in the first full class of women at Oxford, Hazel Ray. Um, she was number one in her officer uh, school right in the Women's Royal Navy right before World War II. My father was in the very first group of Fulbright scholars, and they met in London because my mother was helping run the first Fulbright scholars program. And my father, having been a, a reconnaissance pilot in World War II for General Patton, flying 32 missions into Germany in a tiny Piper Cub, uh, with no armor to order in shelling into the most important uh, enemy uh, positions. Um, my father realized that intelligence or accurate information was so crucial to winning the war. And so my father was part of that first generation of people who helped create and honor the vision of the CIA, which was basically to help sustain the victory that we had won in World War II. And um, so my life was very different because I was around Kennedy's. Courtney Kennedy played with my twin sister, Annie. Um, David Kennedy was a class ahead of me at Potomac School in McLean. I was around Bush's. Neil Bush was on the basketball team with me at St. Albans. Um, and, um, you know, just I was around um, all sorts of families that you know, had traditions of contribution and service. And then I had parents that understood service and contribution on talking about it, but doing it and lived, was born in Germany when my dad was working for the CIA in Munich, Germany when I was born and then lived in England and then Germany. And why that's important is that I started playing soccer when we were in England um, and when England actually won the world cup in 1966, England hosted and won the world cup. I was playing soccer for St. Paul's School, College Court Junior School in Kensington in London, um, 10 hours a day I was playing soccer. And we played for like a month a year. We'd go to Ealing Common, not far from, too far from Wimbledon, and play rugby. And people noticed I could kick really well, and um, it just seemed like a natural gift. So the, the kicking and the, the kick and the, the kick part really started. I played some soccer at the Potomac, but that then became a religion, you know, where the ball really feels like it's part of your foot. And, um, so England was part of that and then went to Germany for two years. And and what I didn't find out till my dad died 10 years ago was speaking of service and speaking of channeling all of those, uh, adverse experiences in life into something productive and powerful and purposeful. Um, my father didn't mention and I didn't find out until after he died that he was actually chief of station for the CIA. Sorry, I have a cold. Um, 
And so if you ever watch James Bond, um, James Bond reports to M. Uh-huh. Who's the head of MI5 and MI6. Well, my father regularly met with the M for the British because my father was the essentially the American M That's so for the Americans cool, yeah. in London for two wow. years. And yet my father never told me that. And, and uh, you know, he was a scholar on, on Russia and Eastern Europe and then switched to Western Europe. He worked with the great historian Arnold Toynbee, uh, who arguably is the greatest historian of the 20th century, wrote a book called 14-volume piece uh, called Study of History and Civilization from 1932 to 1962. And so I bring that up because when you were brought up with the, the notion of history as a narrative that affects us and helps us think what's most important, values that sustain us when we go through failure, it, it helps, you know, it really helps to have perspective. I mean, we've heard of the stories that speak of failure of Abraham Lincoln. And I spent a summer reading about Winston Churchill and all of the rejection he went through. And of course, if you saw the movie Darkest Hour, mm-hmm. um, he uh, was reluctantly made prime minister. And then, of course, helped save the world in yeah. many ways. Yeah. And then was uh, after the greatest victory of, of anybody's career, he was let go as prime minister almost immediately. So, you know, that helps if you understand that failure is part of every sentence that has to do with success. Then instead of rejecting it, um, instead of fighting it, we realize that we are in a different realm where of potentiality we choose to pursue our dreams and so the realm of potentiality of failure goes up as well because the realm of success is much higher as well and so you know whether al gore who was 10 years ahead of me at st albans who you know he arguably won the presidential election in 2000 and you know yet is he really a failure um you know and on and on and on it goes so i bring that up because when you grow up in that environment, you, hopefully you have a little bit more perspective. But frankly, I didn't really see that as I was going through it. Yeah. You know, I, I knew that we were blessed to go to have a good education. We were blessed to have parents that understood service. My next door neighbor, I'm sitting right on my living room in Scottsdale, Arizona, next to the Byron Wizard Right Award, which is the NFL Players' finest award for humanitarian work. And I was uh, unbelievably uh, honored to win that award in 1993. But what many people don't know and if anybody wants to look it up and just Google Nick Harry and Byron Wizard White in the New York Times, there's a wonderful article by Ira Burkow because that Byron Wizard White was my next door neighbor starting in 1962. And Bobby Kennedy, the real Bobby Kennedy, was in his front yard the second day that they'd moved in, having walked over with his dog four miles from Hickory Hill, where they lived. And um, think about being... <laughs> around people that bring out the finest part of us. There's Byron White, who led the National Football League in rushing, not once, but twice, for two different teams in the three years he played, um, and happened to be a Rhodes Scholar, happened to be um, an extraordinary legal mind, who finished number one at Yale Law School, with Harvard and Stanford, probably the best law schools anywhere. And... um, that same year, he finished number one at law uh, at law school. He finished number one in rushing for the Detroit Lions. <laughs> so, wow. 
you know, um, I, I think part of the work we do is to attract or to be intentional to surround ourselves with the thoughts and actions, and if possible, if we're very lucky, the presence of people that bring out our finest selves. And that is true not only in a professional way, it's, it's absolutely true in the personal way as well. But that doesn't mean that we surround ourselves with yes men or women. It means we surround ourselves with people that simply inspire us and challenge us to be living that narrative, that story, that ongoing adventure and journey um, that achieves something unique and powerful and makes every day meaningful. Now, so, when you were then now, this a is a long answer for you. Yeah, well, well, this is though Nick now. What about Nick then? What about the guy that was in college? Did all of this stuff was all of this stuff clear for you? Like, how did you end up getting into? Uh, okay, let me just ask this: How did you end up getting into the NFL? We'll start there. Well. <laughs> Getting into the NFL was um, something I thought I had a chance at. I had no idea, but one thing about being a kicker is very, very specific and measurable. You know, when you're you're an offensive lineman, if they call holding on you, they can call holding every single play. If you got the uh, if you got the block, if you didn't, sometimes they can tell, but from 50 yards away, they can't. And sitting in the stands, but as a kicker, they know if it goes through or it doesn't. (laughs) And and so I knew that if I was good enough in the Ivy League, um, I was lucky enough to, to have a chance just to apply to Ivy League schools, um, I knew that I had a chance. And it made it harder because I wasn't used to the standard and the focus that you might have had at Stanford or at Ohio State, et cetera. But the process was a very difficult one. I was cut by eight NFL teams 11 times during the two years of failure and one would argue that even my own family thought you know I wasn't really being successful but my parents were wise enough to know that if this was my passion um, you know that I should pursue it I was a government major and theater major at Dartmouth College and uh, got a job uh, working as a legislative aide for Senator John Chiefy of Rhode Island and Senator Bob Ackwood and I think to answer your question in a different way, even though these lessons were much more salient, much more obvious in terms of the sports playing field and the rules that are right there that are not quite always so consistently easy to find in the so-called real world, um, realizing that I had to put myself in the position of being rejected by a hundred different senators' offices, I didn't care. Uh, for some reason, I was clear maybe because my, my brothers had gone through during the Vietnam War uh, a time of trying to find themselves. I knew I wasn't going to waste time waiting for something to happen. I was just going to put myself out there, put myself out there, and put myself out there. If it was 100 different senators, I knew I'd get a job eventually. And the Senator Chafee was happy with my work um, on Jimmy Carter's energy plan. <laughs> and I loved... I love the atmosphere there of really making a difference in the, in the post Watergate era. And then I got a job after being cut by uh, the seventh, eighth, ninth and 10th and 11th times. I thought it was time to get a permanent job. And Senator Bob Packwood of Oregon, maybe the smartest mind in the Senate 
uh, hired me to help work on the Olympic boycott, which Jimmy Carter had declared in 1980, and then most specifically on aviation deregulation. So there I had a wonderful choice, a wonderful, you know, different pathway to pursue. And maybe some of the seeds of that attitude were already there, just knowing I had to just keep putting myself out there. But um, something told me that the more that I realized with each projection from the New York Jets, from the New England Patriots, I played two games for them, one on national TV against the Raiders. I just did an interview with Jeff Pullman from Sports Illustrated about that game 40 years ago in Oakland when Daryl Stingley was paralyzed, still in the hospital, and from a illegal but violent hit by Jack Tatum. And we went back to settle the score, and the game went down to the final minute. And, uh, you know, I was still trying to find myself as a kicker, trying to get used to and own that role as the kicker where you wait like so many of us mm. for the opportunity and dream about it and plan for it and work for it. But we often, most of the time, don't know when it's going to come. Now it had come. <laughs> We're on Sunday night primetime in Oakland um, playing the Oakland Raiders for the Patriots. And um, I was scared. Well, I won't finish yeah. the word, but I was totally <laughs> Not ready for my moment in prime time. And luckily, Steve Brogan, the quarterback for the Patriots, on third down from the 24-yard line, um, did a play action, ran around to his left down to the two-yard line, and we had a touchdown. And I think the next point, we won 21-14. Each of those games, and then I was cut. Um, we played the Chargers the next week, and I missed my only field goal attempt badly. Each of those things could have been an end of the journey. But I just realized there's no way. I can get this if I don't keep going till I get used to it. And it's just a simple thing. If you can put yourself out there, everybody that I've talked to, I did a show on Sirius Satellite for um, three years, about a thousand shows. And I talked to lots of people about failure and uh, about being ready for those moments. And the consistent thing I heard was that the breakthrough moment came when they were no longer feeling like it was somebody else's party. Hmm. And, and so the practice became, how do I, just like in theater, play the role and visualize and feel, not just visualize intellectually, but feel those feelings of insecurity um, and nervousness, butterflies, but also confidence, the mixture of feelings that you're, you're combating as you run on the field to be present in the moment, in the middle of the field, to take that kick which you only see for a split second, literally a third of a second, you yeah. see that football before you kick it, and yet be able to be focused, keep your head down to what matters, what you can control, and not worry about 11 very large people paid millions these Just... days to <laughs> block your kick. So it's a perfect analogy for all of us that we've got to put ourselves out there long enough, as long as what we're doing is something that we have a passion for, yeah. um, until we get ready for it, until we get comfortable with it so that was the journey and it took so every team the funny thing is other people might have said he's getting cut he's getting cut what's he doing he's giving up these great jobs in washington dc where he can take advantage of his fine education but the education i was getting was about character was about how i respond to adversity and um it really comes down to maybe i'm i'm, I'm saying it really comes down to presetting our mind that every one of those experiences is learning. 
is learning, is learning, is learning, is learning, you know, it never stops. And that's where you don't get complacent. And that's where you not only make it, but then you make it the next year and the next year and you continue to love getting better. So very, another long answer for you. No, it's perfect. How, how long were you in the NFL? Well, the cool thing is if I had made it and stayed with the Patriots, the New England Patriots in 1978, which had a very good team with Chuck Fairbanks as their coach, who unfortunately decided to leave the team and I think go back to Oklahoma. That team could have been great. Um, but that process um, allowed me to be so much better. If I'd made it initially, I would have been, I think, a mediocre kid. I would have been good one year, not too good the next. Instead, I played 18 years. Wait, why? Why, 17, why is that? 14. I'm so sorry. Why? Why would you feel like you you would be a mediocre kicker? I think that if I made it before I'd gone through all those rejections, I would not have had grounding and the discipline and the momentum of two and three years. I think the human body and mind and soul can go through an enormous amount of regeneration and growth in two years. Most of us want to put <laughs> put ourselves through a rocky, you know, type movie sequence where we train really hard for a month or two or maybe six months. But in two years, we can just go through a complete metamorphosis as human beings, I think. And I, what I noticed was just I realized, <clears throat> excuse me, it wasn't going to be the end of the world if I got cut. They didn't know what I was made of. Only I did. And I had to keep figuring out how to train better physically, mentally, had a weight lift and get stronger. So I got stronger, not only physically, but I got stronger mentally. And when I did make it, I had to give up this job for the Senate Commerce Committee on, you know, working as a permanent member of the staff of the Senate Commerce Committee, which was only attorneys, to try one last time. And then I had to go against the greatest kicker in the history of the game at that point, Jan Stenerud. So people would have logically said he's crazy or he's not going to make it. But I really felt like I paid my dues. There's a lot to be said for knowing you've put in the work and you won't stop putting in the work. And so I just knew I had to outkick Jan Stenerud every day at everything. And so in the heart of his career, he played another six, seven, seven years for Minnesota and Green Bay. Hall of the first kicker in the Hall of Fame. I kicked his butt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it was so obvious to Marv Levy, our coach, that I just was more consistent and more hungry. And uh, Jan didn't like me for a couple of years. We became good friends. And I think he realized he had to redouble his sense of how to train. And so he did. So he finished his career kicking as well or better than he ever had. So wow. the key thing is about competition is it can make even the people that are defeated um, get better as well because they realize they have to. And that's just what it is. The people that know how to respond um, can get better. And those are the real champions. So every one of those rejections was part of the process of owning that position. And, and so what I tell people is Matthew, that that place in the middle of the field between the hash marks where the ball's being snapped eight yards back to where it's put down. 
and another four yards back to where I was beginning. So that's 12 yards. But really, the only area was that four-yard area and maybe three yards wide. So 12 feet by nine feet. That was my office. And if I took care of everything in that space and didn't allow anyone to distract me and was aggressive, not like the golfer that tries to hit the ball 350 yards, but was still aggressive, not crazy trying to kill the ball, but to be a, attack the ball and with, with the presumption of success, um, I might not make free kick, but I'd sure make a lot of them. And, and that's exactly the place that I worked towards during my career. By the end of my career, when I was trying to figure out how to preset myself as I'm coming into the ball as a kicker, I think this is another great analogy. I would say left foot because I was a right footed kicker. So I'd plant my left foot and point at the target, just like we plant our intention at the target, right at the target. And then I'd say explode. And that those words worked for me. Everybody has to find what works for them. But that word explode meant for me, attack it. Don't try to kill it, but be aggressive. Trust it. And that's where I think a Tiger Woods uh, was great. Maybe, we'll see, able to regain his greatness. But it comes down to loving the work and trusting your preparation. Mm. And when you lose that, and that dialogue in your head begins to lose track again, and you worry about the misses, and then you start getting tentative, that's when you, you lose your greatest ability. There's a lot of research now, and I'm very fascinated by the brain, doing a lot of work, which we can talk about hopefully in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you know the way the brain works when we are when we are self-conscious the brain um is basically focused on the large muscle groups but the large muscle groups may have power they have no dexterity they don't have the natural flow when you throw a ball or the natural flow when you swing a golf club or a baseball bat or or your leg there is an infinite amount of wisdom and in, intention and confidence in the natural synapses in the brain that know how to attack the ball that you've practiced on and on. And that's where the attitude has to be. This is my office. I'm going to give it the best I can. And then whatever information comes from it, whether it was good or not, that's where I'll make my adjustment. But if you, in the midst of it, say, oh, maybe the wind, maybe I should have aim a little farther right, or, you know, maybe I need to get the ball up a little faster. Maybe. And whatever you're changing in the midst of that's when you can get in trouble. And those things you only learn through trial and error. So if you have the confidence to put yourself through, in your own mind, 100,000 games of trial and error, then you're going to be more ready as long as you're working your butt off and consistently to be better, mm-hmm. to be focused. It, it obviously worked because you played 18 years in the NFL. You were a Kansas City Chief Hall of Famer, a seven-time All-Pro, is that right? And the Chiefs' all-time leading scorer. So you did something right. <laughs> that's amazing. That's, I mean, that's Well, a, thank you. I think it was I think that all those failures also help you not allow yourself to get complacent. You realize 
if you're just a couple misses away from losing your job. I mean, I, when you listen to the New England Patriots, whatever your attitude is about the Patriots, they've had tremendous success. And the reason is that Bill Belichick and Tom Brady together cement an incredibly disciplined culture of not taking it for granted. They won't ever spend time saying, you know, I had an awesome game and uh, Randy Moss was incredible. And I'm incredible. I can't believe how well I'm playing and my teammates are amazing. I mean, they'll pay some lip service to it, but they'll almost immediately after one sentence of, yeah, we played well, it's, we got more work to do. Yeah. yeah. And that's where the joy really is. You can get yourself to the place of loving the preparation, loving the work. That's where greatness can happen. And that will always be there for you. And that's what a craftsman is. That's what a professional is. That's what a champion is. Wow. Wow. So powerful. You know, Nick, if we could just take a couple more minutes and kind of take us into the worst moment that you failed, the one that was the hardest to come back from, or maybe a, a miss that possibly hurt. Oh, absolutely. We're playing Cleveland in 1989. And it's a freezing day, and it's Marty Schottenheimer, our head coach's first return after 10 years of coaching the Cleveland Browns as our coach with Kansas City. And we come into the locker room before the game, and Steve DeBerg, our quarterback, who's very funny, was complaining that Mike Webster, the late great Mike Webster, I'm going to talk about him in a second for what I do now. Mike had left the windows open at night, and they were freezing. But that was sort of Mike's way of just being ready with the ridiculously cold conditions that you can find yourself in at the end of the season. So we're playing in Cleveland and um, it it's definitely was the worst muddy field, the old stadium, the dog pound, et cetera. And um, it's 10 to seven for Cleveland. And I kicked a 41 yard field goal, not a pretty one, but it went through to tie the game with about four minutes left. And for one <laughs> brief second, cause that was 89. I was already, the most accurate kicker in NFL history. Um, but it was such a lesson for me because I went out, I was not ready when somehow we completed and not having moved the ball virtually all game. We got a first down and I had a chance to try a field goal to win the game. And I lined up a 45 yarder and Steve Pallor was my holder and I kicked it and the ball just kind of hooked left. It was so strange. It was straight and still made this last second it hooked. And, but they were offside, so now I had one from 40. And I'm like, okay, and I'll attack it again. And, and the last second I hooked again, and I was just devastated because I'd always prided myself on helping my team. And, man, in the overtime, because it was tied, I had one last temp, attempt from 48 yards. And I, it was the worst. I mean, this is a terrible kick. And, you know, it's like a foot of mud in there. But you know, nobody cares about those things. No. And so after the game, the next day in the, in the – uh, in the paper, it's a picture of me with like a jack-in-the-box with a spring coming out of my head. Like, I oh, no. totally lost it. Oh. And I realized there in one game in a few minutes, my career could go from being the very best to being considered, you know, a total failure or, you know, huge uh, letdown. And <clears throat> I dedicated myself to never feeling that again. Hmm. And... um I really helped me actually. I was watching late night and watched an infomercial with Tony Robbins and I really enjoyed his tapes because what they did was they helped me really preset what really mattered, clear away the stuff that didn't, rewire myself. 
And the next year, my goal was that I was going to be so good that Marty Schottenheimer would just come over to me. And I loved him as a coach because he, he wasn't going to spend a lot of time patting you on the back. He just expected if you did your job and you worked hard, that was enough. Mm-hmm. And I really loved that, the clear environment. But I wanted him to do, I wanted to be so much better that he was like, wow, what's happening? And that's what happened at first in training camp. And then um, I led the NFL in scoring that year. I was 34 for 37. I had 24 consecutive field goals. And it's just the failure, those rejections, that humiliation in the paper was so significant that um, I just knew I had to use it to make sure I never felt that again. That was the key. Wow. 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 What a story. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, if very many people can bounce back from that. I mean, that's a, uh, that's tough. That's very tough. And so it may be better than ever. And what's really cool is I think in my career, I was like 77% or 78 or something. And from that point on in the, in the nineties, I kicked it like 86%. No one came close. I think Pete Stoyanovich was at 80%. I was at 86%. I had 21 field goals in a row the next year. I was 22 for 24 the next year. So what had been the greatest humiliation was something that was such a sting, such a bee sting that was still in my uh, mind and heart and soul from that experience pushed me and you know, frankly, the games mattered too. I'm playing with Joe Montana in '93 and Marcus Allen and Derek Thomas, and we were a darn good team. Yeah. And so now the kicks—not only was I making my kicks, but they really mattered. I mean, we were a darn good team. Arrowhead Stadium was packed with red, you know, with people, seventy-eight thousand jerseys and red, and the sense of this really was a team. I'd never experienced that before. I had good teams with the Chiefs, but not a really championship caliber team. And uh, that was something that Marty gave me. And Marv Levy was an awesome coach. He went on to be a Hall of Fame coach precisely probably because of that rejection from the Chiefs, not giving him a chance to come back after the 82 strike season when, you know, the team, the players hadn't played for two months, et cetera. But Marv took a few years off. I think he coached him for uh, other league briefly. And then he goes to Buffalo and takes the Bills to four straight Super Bowls. And he was much better. But Marv had the courage to pick me over Jan Stenard. And I'll never, never forget that. And a wonderful coach. Marty, Marty Schottenheimer helped me experience what it was like to not only be at my best and to and to accept that I was taking on <clears throat> this higher standard because it was worth it because it was part of being a champion. When you, when you sat in the front row at the team meetings, as I did, I'd see Marty's hand shaking. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just because he cared so much about us. And so it was a beautiful experience and only, staying with it, not just having a flash in the pan, one or two good years and going to the pro bowl as I did in my first couple of years, kicking the game winning field goal in the pro bowl, but then maybe disappearing like so many people did and do, whether it's in music or whether it's in Hollywood, whether it's in business, they have a couple of great years. They get soaked up by the attention. They get to their heads and disappear, fade away or flame out. Mm-hmm. And you know, by staying with it with the Chiefs for 10 years, now I got to play with a real team 
with Carl Peterson and Marty Schottenheimer with a complete, <laughs> completely packed stadium. And, um, and that also led to more opportunities to do good things in the community. So, you know, that notion of success is complete. It's a circle. It's not a line. It's a circle. And it allows you <laughs> to return to your deepest roots, your deepest core values, so you can share what was it that I learned that I can give to every kid. Wonderful kid with cerebral palsy, every kid in the, you know, a underserved community, um, working with the homeless today, uh, champions with the homeless, working with native American youth, as I've been lucky to do for 23 years now. Um, you know, that success is a circle. It returns us back to Dick Johnson, who was my mentor and coach in high school and throughout college and through all those rejections saying it's not how many times you fall down, it's how many times you get back up. The mentors that helped me think about how I can turn these failures into something that I knew were good for me, that is the difficult thing to do. Yeah, you know, yeah. you don't want to turn into a masochist, but that's what character is about, you know, and that's why a Winston Churchill and an Abraham Lincoln and the people we admire the most, um, that's why they got to where they needed to be wow. because they put themselves in a potential place of great failure. But also they knew that if they lived there in the end, it was this laboratory of our soul that uh, can never stop growing. Hmm. And that's what to me was really rewarding is realize when I'm 105, I want to be teaching at Harvard or back at Dartmouth, yeah. you know, with a group of 20 year olds. And have all these great stories to help them find their purpose, find what stirs their greatest gifts, stirs their greatest abilities, um, and fills them with a sense that life can have meaning right now and always have meaning. Because in the end, who else is going to know that but us? Mm -hmm. Matthew has his own journey. Nick has his own journey. We all have our own journey, and that journey will be every single day. Am I doing something that really fills me up and brings me to a different place where I can endure <laughs> the little dumb things, which are part of being human? Yeah. Well, Nick, I, I, I should have disclosed to you before we started this conversation that I'm a, uh, I'm a longtime Broncos fan. but And I could selfishly spend the next 20 minutes asking you more questions about football, but I do want to get to what you are working on today. So we can transition. Well, I, let me just say, Go ahead. Let me just say the yeah. Broncos, let's see, <laughs> Monday Night Football, uh, I'll never forget. We always seem to get a lot of field goals against the Broncos. Uh -huh. Never forget Monday Night Football, 1993, Joe Montana against John Elway. Oh, and I'm walking man. into my kitchen right now because I want to see the exact date. Oh. But it was really cool. Uh, let's see, Kent Pulliam. But it was the Monday night game in, in, in early September, and I had a 52-yarder and five, uh, with the 20th 50-yarder of my career wow. and scored all our points. We were leading 15 nothing until a few seconds left in the game, all on my kicks. And, and Joe Montana gave me a lot of you-know-what the next day because <laughs> I, I, was on the, I was on the front page of the Kansas City Star, Lowry Chiefs like out victory and USA Today, not him. But um <laughs> but but he'd never had a kicker that could dominate like that. Yeah. And he was a huge game and I and I loved oh, it. And, I love and it. as I as I walk further, see think about what these are sort of like on the tree of your life, 
branches you would never have gotten to if you didn't put yourself out there. So now I walk into my office and I'm staring at a Sports Illustrated article on the right by um, Peter King, the greatest mm -hmm. NFL writer Sports mm -hmm. Illustrated's ever had, yeah. uh, along with, I guess, Zimmerman, Paul Zimmerman. And then uh, a letter on White House stationery from September 22nd, 1993. Dear Nick, White House stationery, um, the White House, Washington. Congratulations on a great underlined game Monday night. All your wow. national service pals are proud. Thanks for all the time you gave to the national service effort. I thought of you yesterday when I signed the bill, which is the AmeriCorps bill, which I'd worked on for President Bill Clinton uh, in the offseason previous year. The kids of this country will be better for it, and so will the rest of us sincerely, Bill Clinton. And that was that Monday night game. So, wow. Uh, That's <laughs> uh, so cool. And then... The, it's so cool that that was a Broncos game. And then the next year I'm playing for the jets and my very first home game is against the Broncos. It goes to overtime and I get to kick the game winning two goal. <laughs> 41 <laughs> so year, 41 year yep. right hat yep. to beat the Broncos. But uh, if I had to play for any other team, Matthew, it would have been the Broncos. That's I just awesome. always loved my father's family was from Colorado, from mm -hmm. Fort Collins. And, and um, of course it's, not hard to kick a ball farther there course, with the altitude and yeah i just i just love the mountains and great so there's a little insight into the bar i love it like i said i would just ask you more and more questions but i want to be sensitive with your time as well tell us kind of what you're working on today you talked about doing research on the brain can you can you go into that a little bit more details well i'm fascinated by how no matter how hard I trained, every day and every game was different. And as you start to talk to the great achievers in sports, whether they're sports psychologists or actually the athletes and the champions or the coaches, they all, I think, realize you're trying to get your players to feel confident and to be relaxed but alert. You don't want them to be too relaxed. And you don't want them to be so alert that they're anxious. That's very hard to do. And, and that's where the training comes in and how you look at training. So for me, the training had to be not just the physical action of weightlifting and stretching and doing karate or ballet or doing sprints with, with pants that had weights in them or whatever. It was also visualizing the situation, visualizing what you're going to have to deal with. So that began to evolve into what is it about the brain and um, how do we control it? So um, fast forward the last few years, I've been very interested in keeping the brain healthy. So while there's an insight into trauma, right? The trauma could be missing three field goals against the Cleveland Browns in 1989 yeah, yeah. when it's a big game for your head coach and, and you feel like you let your team down. But trauma could be that you're a woman who's in a, an abusive relationship, who's had a traumatic brain injury. Um, oh, over 80% of women in traumatic brain injuries, uh, in, it's, sorry, in domestic violence relationships have had traumatic brain injuries in the past year. If, and, and usually over 80% have had more than one. And their kids have had them as well. And half their kids are under five. So I became fascinated by how does this affect how we see the world? Maybe because I had parents like, Sidney Lowry and Hazel Bray, who um, turned all that adversity and those other traumas from World War II, my mother losing her 
two, two or three siblings in childhood and all these other things, seeing people killed and, you know, in the war and yet didn't allow that to, to, um, sabotage their sense of how beautiful life can be. And so I just started looking at that and, and more and more now I've been focused on the concussion issue and in, in, in the NFL yeah. and what it does to the brain. And, and, and frankly, that same Mike Webster, you know, who is featured in the movie concussion. Uh, I wanted to make sure that his uh, former wife, Pam Webster, um, isn't haunted that she didn't do enough because she didn't realize what he was going through when she divorced him because he was going through chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So I'm with a company now, I'm the national spokesperson for a company called Canalize Sciences. We were just uh, in the Journal of Molecular Neuroscience, uh, an article by Dr. Bill Kenny and Dr. Doug Brenneman uh, on this research we're doing um, where we're fascinated and we have the only molecules uh, from um, chronic, uh, excuse me, from CBD, which uh, created in the lab, uh, we're seeing has tremendous potential uh, per Dr. Julius Axelrod, Nobel Prize winner. Um, to be a neuroprotectant and an antioxidant. It's patent number 6630507, or some people call it patent number 507. And Dr. Julius Axelrod was a sort of rock star scientist who showed that cannabis uh, is incredibly effective in protecting the brain. Now, my job is to help people understand that not, we're not talking about marijuana, in this case, sure. even yeah. hemp. Yeah. That it, it's what's called a CBD, synthesized CBD, or from cannabidiol, that is not a high. I actually worked in the White House Drug Abuse Policy Office, so that's another side. Is that, you know, I was able to come back in half my off-seasons and work in Washington for President Reagan, President H.W. Bush, President Clinton, and um, some other um, people that were trying to do good things in the world. And um, so what we're finding is without the high – that we can, um, we've had tremendous results in our data with regard to um, protecting the neurons in the brain from neuropathic pain. We have an NIH grant right now, and we have the only patented molecules, KLS-13019 is one of them, a lot of numbers I know, KLS-13019, and then the CBD molecule that we have the patent for from Dr. Julius Axelrod, which we're looking at and testing with the FDA standard protocols to see how we can protect the brain. So America's greatest game, the National Football League, which teaches the greatest lessons about character, dealing with adversity, coming back from missed field goals or missed tackles or missed passes or drop passes or fumbles or you know missed blocks or whatever those things are, just losing and the pain that it represents and coming back from that. And and America's greatest game teaches those lessons, but it's it's under great challenge right now because of concussions and CTE and repetitive head trauma. Mm-hmm. So it comes back to the brain again, it comes back to attitude, but also in this case, whether it's um, Da Vinci or Michelangelo or, you know, Galileo or the great scientists, uh, Dr. Julius Axelrod or Jonas Salk, you know, people that are saying we can do better. And I love this because the final frontier, just like in Star Trek when you say space, the final frontier, well, it's it, the brain is the final frontier in medicine. And we can do so much good to provide 
protection to the brain. And we're just helping bring um, this new resource to help people, um, which Stanford University has found, which the Salk Institute has found, are that CBDs are neuroprotectants and antioxidants. They protect the brain. They can actually potentially, as Stanford said, feed the receptors in our bodies so that the natural regulatory system of the body is enhanced and in specific focused applications like Ken Life Sciences is doing, we can help with CTE and neuropathic pain. And that's, that's what we're working on today. And, and I hope um, with the immense opioid crisis where 60,000 people have died the last few years, each of the last few years because of this pandemic worldwide really with opioids, I think that this is a very exciting, incredibly exciting opportunity to turn around this crisis. So wow. love it because it's helping my teammates like yeah. Roy Clark, who we lost, like uh, Kenny Stabler, whose golf tournament I hosted six, seven years ago in Mobile, Alabama for his Exo Foundation. He's gone now. Mike Webster, Dave Duerson, Junior Seau, and on and on. Wonderful human beings, yeah. immensely talented football players um and we need to do more and uh that's amazing the nfl is is beginning is beginning to realize that in a way uh, that i think is really going to make a difference yeah where can people find out more information about this like the research well they can go to canalife sciences k-a-n-n-a-l-i-f-e canalife sciences okay and um you can also google Dateline NBC Candlelight K A N N A L I F E was a nice seven minute piece about what we're doing, which has nothing to do with THC, nothing to do with the high. So that mm-hmm. all of the, frankly, somewhat exaggerated fears um, about cannabis yeah. can be clarified when you're talking. Please, you know, talk about marijuana if you want, but make sure you make the distinction. This is not marijuana and this is not even hemp in the case of Candlelight Sciences. This, these are CBD synthesized molecules, which um, are going to make a huge difference. So wow. uh, Candlelight Sciences. And then if you want to learn more about 1500 different papers on the 150 different uh, amazing conditions, you can go to echoconnection.org that ECHO echo connection, one word, org and click on education. You can look up anxiety, sleep, dementia, Alzheimer's, pain, uh, and on and on. So very exciting time we're living in to um, bring about a change in medicine and help people that uh, have witnessed huge increases in autism and cancer yeah. and, and other conditions and hopefully turn that around. Nick, before you go... I ask all of my guests these two questions, okay? And I want to get your definition. How would you define failure? Failure is the inability to put oneself into a situation where one uh, risks, um, where one risks. And most importantly, failure is when one is not able through intention or through um, simply not attempting to learn and grow mm-hmm. from that rejection or that humiliation. Yes. That is true failure. Yes. When we stop or give up on the, the inevitable daily cellular uh, challenge to 
what we're about um, when we can always learn and always grow. Uh, the same thing can happen to two people, the very exact same thing. And one person takes that failure and says, I'm not going to allow that to be perpetuated in my life story and in the people that I connect with in my life, whether it's my children or whether it's my career. And then the other person says, that's the reason. That's the reason why I can't be successful. Mm. Same thing, but mm -hmm. yet one choice empowers us and the other takes all of our power away. Because I think uh, from a spiritual point of view, um, this is just my belief. God put us here to go through that adversity mm. so that we appreciate the blessings that we've been given. Wow. Because if there is a state that is the most healthy of all, it's the state of gratitude. The state of gratitude is not from a lack of failure. It's not from a lack of adversity. It's, it's how much more there is that we discover through that experience. How would you define? I left one thing out too, Matthew. Go ahead, please. I left one thing out, which is, which is creativity. I think that that when I work with Native American kids, I've been chairman of the National Fund for American Indian Education. I testified for Senator in front of Senator Jim uh, uh, John McCain in 2005 for that. You know, I, I one of the, the crucial parts of that brain I was just referring to is the creative side. And the creative part of our brain is very much linked to the spiritual part of our brain, too. And so it's the creativity that allows us to discover what's unique to how each of us takes in the world and then how we express it. Mm. And that yeah. means that we can pave new highways even when we thought all was lost. Mm. Yes, I love it. How would you define success? Success is um, finding... Um, the capacity every day to have a purpose that serves and is an expression of our unique gifts in such a way that we inspire others to dig deeper than they ever thought possible into their own gifts such that they always find not only a sense of purpose for themselves, but give that sense of inspiration to everybody they meet. With that definition, do you feel like you are successful? I, I feel I'm very blessed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that in, in that sense of, of blessing, that's where the success is mm -hmm. because, you know, every day uh, we're driving on the Route 101 in East Scottsdale and somebody cuts us off in traffic or there's a, a, a chip in our windshield or it rains, the monsoon rains at night or you have a blowout in the tire but but uh, in the end, um, there's so much more. And um, I think going back to how we surround ourselves with, I did this interview because I know that it's going to reach even one person mm -hmm. who's going to realize, you know what? There was a choice that I made back when I was 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 when I thought I couldn't go in, in that other direction. And now I realize it's what I have to do and wow. that in that direction is where all the juice is and if we can help that that's point there's nothing better than that nothing this has been such an amazing hour so thank you so much for taking this time where can my audience find you 
Well, you know what? If you can go to put in just can of life and Nick Lowry or can away, K-A-N-N-A-W-A-Y, you can go to nicklowry.org, N-I-C-K-L-O-W-E-R-Y, like flowery without the F, nicklowry.org or lowryspeaks.com. And, um, you know, look at America and the phrase, you know, whether it's make America again or keep America great or whatever. To me, um, America's greatest capacity is always that all of us individually um, have the chance that others would never have. And it starts with people like Matthew who, um, you know, understand failure is our best friend and our biggest mentor. I really appreciate it. Wow. Failure is our best friend and our biggest mentor. Okay. I don't know about you, but I love this man. I wanted to crawl through the phone, sit in his dining room, and just talk sports. I wanted to walk down his hallway and see the newspaper articles and relive history with him. But more importantly, his zest for life and his desire to help people is so contagious. See, Nick failed on a national stage. Cody Parkey failed on a national stage. You and I, hopefully, will someday fail on a national stage, but we fail. We face adversity. How will you respond? Your response to adverse situations is what will determine how fast you bounce back. What happens in your life is not what matters. How you respond is what truly matters. I'll see you next week.